1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: We have the VASNA arrangement for exports of, you know, conventional military systems, and that also covers UAVs. So, you know, that is something which is already there. It's rather because we have the Category 1 2 distinction in the MTCR, that it's been so what from the US perspective has been then seen as self-restricting. So I was not very happy about the change in policy but that was mostly due to the fact that you know it it means that we're opening the floodgates to some extent and other states might follow suit. I would rather see a proper solution before that happens through unilateral action by the United States. So again, I don't think we're that far apart but it's it's how we get to that aim. So I would have surely uh, hoped that uh, we would work towards a a solution, but the context, obviously, it was difficult and has just gotten so much more difficult uh, now that it's very unlikely that we, we see a change from within the MTCR coming to that now.
0: I'm Matt Gluck, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 16th, 2022. I sat down with Tom Carrico, the director of the Missile Defense Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and Colia Brockman, a researcher with the Dual Use and Arms Trade Control Program at the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, to discuss the Missile Technology Control Regime, an international agreement that seeks to prevent the harmful proliferation of certain missiles and missile technology. We spoke about the origins of the agreement, the challenges it has faced, and potential avenues for productive reform. Is the agreement still useful or have technological advances and developments in other areas over the last few decades left it outdated? It's the Lawfare podcast, August 16th, the MTCR and its possible reforms. Colio, we'll start with you. Could you describe the missile technology control regime, also known as the MTCR, what it does and where it stands today?
2: So the MTCR, the Missile Technology Control Regime, was created in 1987 by the G7. So initially, it was only seven states that got together in an informal way to come to an arrangement to set up a mechanism through which they could coordinate and harmonize their export controls in the areas uh, of missiles. It's important to notice here that the MTCR is not a treaty. It's not legally binding. It doesn't have uh, member states as such. They talk about uh, participating states or determine the MTCR as the partners. And they implement guidelines and control lists, but they do so through national legislation. So the MTCR is a forum that they've created in which they get together, uh, discuss and come up with the, the guidelines and the control lists they are updated uh, every year and yeah this is a a group of state that is quite informal since 1987 it has grown uh, from initially seven partners to uh, 35 partners today uh, the growth of uh, membership slowed significantly since the 2000s but the last uh, admission which was also a big one was uh, was india In terms of the membership, it is largely dominated by uh, Western countries, but uh, also includes uh, Russia, it includes South Africa. So there is quite a mix. It is relatively like-minded in terms of the the makeup of of the members, but particularly in in recent years, the tensions between Russia and the US uh, have really put a, a hold on some of the activities. In terms of what the MTCR does, uh, its objective is to prevent the proliferation of uncrewed delivery systems for weapons of mass destruction, uh, that is chemical, biological, nuclear weapons. Airplanes are explicitly excluded here. Originally, the MTCR only thought to cover uh, nuclear weapons delivery systems and proliferation to states. But uh, over time, this has expanded to then include chemical and biological weapons delivery systems and also uh, to fighting proliferation to non-state actors.
0: Thank you for that helpful background. Tom, how do you view the original goals and legacy of the MTCR?
1: Yeah, thanks, Matt. You know, I I think Koya has given a, a good intro there. Uh, in terms of the the overview of what mtcr is i think I might just talk a little bit about the the backstory from the u s perspective and, and really kind of focusing on let's just say the the m and the T uh, of the mtcr uh, you know one of the uh, as he noted it was it is not a treaty uh it's an it's a relatively uh informal mechanism uh, among cooperating states and has grown considerably from seven to thirty five members over the past uh, thirty five years this is the 35th anniversary of, of MTCR here in 2022, you, you know, one of the strengths of, you might say, specific non-proliferation or counter-proliferation efforts is clarity of purpose, you know, stopping or addressing particular things, perhaps from particular places. And so I think there, there are some questions, you know, as, as, as he noted, it's, it's, it's changed a lot. It's expanded in terms of its goals to include things like UAVs and other kind of new uh, missile forms that are not ballistic or cruise, for instance. You know, this was this came about in 1987, the same year as the INF treaty. You know, these these are two uh, regimes of one form or another that were, you know, really focused on ballistic and cruise missiles at, at that time. I think the context and the particular problems, though, are worth uh, raising and tabling so that we can kind of uh, kind of assess its its status today. Back in the 50s and the 60s, we were kind of, many countries, the United States, Soviet Union, uh, were kind of proliferating various forms of missilery with, with some abandon. And it was kind of in the, the 70s, I think it was the Ford administration, when the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency, ACTA, uh, kind of looked around and said, hey, maybe we th- these missiles seem like an object of uh, weapons of ill repute, I think was the, the phrase that they were floating with kind of potential talks with the Soviet Union to kind of Get a handle on this. Uh, that was in the the late nineteen uh, mid nineteen seventies and late nineteen seventies. We didn't, the Carter administration didn't get a, an agreement on that, but it was actually the the Reagan administration in nineteen eighty two uh, issued a, an executive order that had to do with nuclear capable missile technology transfer policy, and it was became U.S. policy to hinder the proliferation of foreign missiles capable of delivering nuclear weapons. And I think that really speaks to the clarity of. Of purpose of the original arrangement that then became socialized with the G seven and it became what we we know of today as the as the MTCR, but you know where are we today thirty five uh, I guess forty years later after that uh, executive order, the geopolitical situation has changed dramatically and so has the technological situation and so I think I think there's some questions uh, that, that have to ask about while the, the informality of the arrangement has, I would say, contributed to its durability, what is the thing that we're trying to accomplish here? What, what are the objects uh, and purposes of this agreement today in today's context, as opposed to 40 years ago? I think it's important. We're, we're in this new uh, era of renewed competition. It's not the Cold War, but it's something else to assess with, a fresh, uh, with fresh eyes these kinds of regimes and how they are suited to the
0: circumstances of today. And I want to get into those hard policy questions, and we will. Before we dive into those issues, one important component of the MTCR, as I understand it, is the distinction between Category 1 items and Category 2 items. Tom, could you describe what these categories are and what sets apart the items in each category?
1: Yeah, well, without getting too, too in the weeds here, there's the, the quote-unquote presumption uh, to deny the, the transfer of these things with a stronger presumption for category one than category two. Category one being what's called complete systems or complete subsystems. So think about, you know, uh, whole missiles being created off of a ship from, say, China to Pakistan, for instance, or, you know, rocket motors or, or some, el- some some element. Uh, and then the category two things are more on the, the, the contributors, uh, substantial contributors, technology, things like that. And you know, again, one of the one of the virtues uh, of the of the regime is is that it is, I would say, prudential, and uh, it's not you know a blanket statement that thou shalt never transfer anything in this particular category, but it really uh, in, calls upon its participants to make <laughs> good judgments uh, together and and independently about whether or not to to greenlight the export of certain technologies, for instance. Now, back in the the 80s and the 90s when we were trying to cabin in the, the proliferation of uh, missiles to like uh, Saddam Hussein's Iraq. I mean, what were the things we were worried about? Well, like a, a fast multi-megabyte uh, supercomputer of the <laughs> of the day. You know, so much has changed on the te- technological front that we almost, I would say, wouldn't recognize uh, the objects that would uh, were, were under uh, curtailment back, you know, many decades ago.
0: And speaking of those uh, technological changes, Kolya, you have written about some of the technological and consensus related challenges that have hampered the effectiveness of the MTCR. Could you describe some of those challenges and how you think that we should address them moving forward?
2: Sure. Uh, the missile world of today is a very different one to that uh that we've had in particularly the the 1990s when, really, uh, the MTCR got to work. It's both the types of missiles that we're talking about, it is the types of technologies that are being used to build and develop and design the missiles, but it's also the context in which missile technology is being uh, developed and produced today. Back then, we hardly had states, uh, at least in the global south, with missile programs that were able to do development indigenously. Today, the space industry is commercialized, it is global, and in general, ballistic missile technology, which is at least uh, still the, the center of this, is very old. I mean, it was very old back then already, but now it's a technology that is being taught freely at university around the world it's something that is quite accessible so that context of what can be acquired and how has changed quite significantly the missiles that we're talking about have changed the requirements but also you know what we really are concerned about the size and weight of warheads for example has changed significantly so the requirements and uh, missions that we assign to certain types of missiles have changed so the whole context in terms of which missile technologies are out there how they can be acquired what missions states actually want to acquire both ballistic and cruise missiles for and the range of other delivery systems that we need to consider in this context i mean drones or Uncrewed aerial vehicles have been covered by the MTCR but their role really like there's there's no comparison in the way that the MTCR initially described these and it's, a lot of it is around targeting drones etc that's really changed you know today we we have you know long range drones uh, high altitude uh, long endurance systems which obviously can carry similar payloads uh, in terms of the weight they have uh, a long range, but they 're not seen as okay, this could be a type of kamikaze system that is interchangeable with what you know a type of ballistic missile that uh, that we consider like the way that we think about these you know not basic ballistic missile systems has also evolved, so in that context, a lot is developing. The other point then in on the technology side is a lot of the what 's uh, often called emerging tech, comes in more and more in the missile area. And that in part comes through the aerospace sector, in part it comes through the space sector. But think, for example, of additive manufacturing. That is something which currently is really in the process of, um, I don't want to say revolutionizing, but it's really putting new possibilities on some of the approaches to missile design that sort of like we've had going for a long, long time. Uh, So those things come in. And really what that meant for the MTCR is they had to, in some ways, adjust what the list covers. In some ways, they had to add new technologies to the list or see how the list entries that uh, we have can be applied to them. But to some extent, also, there's been standstill, at least in terms of these distinction between Category 1 and Category 2. So it's been mostly interpretation of those categories and the application that has really been deciding on how restrictive or not restrictive uh, MTCR controls have actually been implemented.
0: And to follow up on that with you, Kolya you view these challenges uh, as being workable through the MTCR. Could you explain a little bit more about um, how you think the MTCR can evolve to address these challenges specifically? Because it seems that the way the MTCR has operated in the past likely would not work well within this new technological environment.
2: Well, first of all, I think we need to note that the MTCR currently is in, in an incredibly difficult situation. The MTCR works only through consensus decision. This means if all present 35 partners actually agree to decisions during the annual plenary. That is how decisions on essentially everything uh, is being made within the MTCR. Both Russia and Ukraine are members of the MTCR and particularly in in the context of uh, the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine There obviously is uh, very little chance of consensus decisions uh, right now. To make it even more difficult, Russia also currently chairs the MTCR. And that obviously has led to an incredibly difficult process in terms of um, the working of the MTCR. One needs to understand the MTCR, although it's informal, as I said in the beginning, it is in, in a way a bureaucracy too. There's multiple working groups uh, which are or expert groups that are working the whole year with input from the different states. There is an exchange of information on proliferation concerns, on different uh technological developments and so on. That is a, a constant thing. So there's there is a, you know, there's a working rhythm there, but currently um from what we can tell, all MTCR things are uh classified. So we we only have a certain view to what actually happens uh, inside the discussions there but we we are fairly sure that it's a very very difficult situation there right now and really the consensus requirement is the main obstacle to anything that speaks to changes of the MTCR that being said the MTCR has a lot of potential in terms of how the functions that it has can be improved and we also need to look at the wider context and sort of value of the MTCR because it's not just that the MTCR partners are benefiting from the MTCR being there, but essentially the MTCR is providing a public good, particularly the control lists that the MTCR has are incredibly valuable because the control lists have really been an effort to define out and list what critical technologies, what uh, dual use technologies are in the area of missile technology. And for any state that wants to implement a system of dual use export controls, or even just wants to have a list of sensitive items in that area, the MTCR control list is the go-to. And upholding that and continuing the practice of maintaining that list in itself is a very important thing. Through the United Nations Security Council Resolution 1540, all uh, states are also obliged to have some type of export control system that is adequate in place. Now, even if they can't become partners in the MTCR, they can still actually use the control lists and they can still consult the guidelines and see if they implement them uh, unilaterally or even just to use them as they want to. So there's there's value in what the MTCR does in its essential functions beyond the membership. In terms of what can improve, uh, I think particularly for the MTCR to continue to be perceived as a legitimate instrument that is actually helping beyond the membership because membership has also stagnated because there is no consensus on expanding the membership. But in order for the MTCR and the product that the MTCR in that sense has to the outside, which is mostly the control list, it should be transparent. And the engagement with outside actors, the outreach work, for many of those things, there can be improvements. And it's really been that it's differed between the chairs, which uh, rotate annually in, uh, in the MTCR, and in terms of just creating better uh, procedures that could improve some aspects, for example, in that area. But there's other there's others as well, but Tom probably has some thoughts on this as well. Yes, Tom. So
0: as I understand it, you take a different view of the optimal future of the MTCR and these types of international agreements. Could you lay out your view and uh, perhaps touch on some of the points that Kolya uh, mentioned? Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that, Matt. I think
1: that's fair. I think I've been slowly coming around to, the, to this perspective, and that is that for exactly the many of the reasons that Kolya uh, raised there, uh, not just in terms of the, the ability to get you know Russia and the United States and Ukraine and India and all these other countries to agree on uh, a thing, but also the changing of technology that so much has, has, has changed that the question really becomes, look, what are we trying to do here? I think uh, flagged the public good of identifying kind of items of concern the constituent pieces of of uh, of missilery which you know to, to, to one view might look like a kind of a shopping list if not also a guide to to restricting exports and so I would kind of try to be a little provocative here that where in the 1990s you know for the MTCR the discussion was well you know our SL SO, or space launch vehicles SLVs okay but missiles are bad you know they they certainly look a lot like each other, and the constituent parts look a lot uh, like each other. Today, it's so much more complicated. I mentioned the supercomputer from the 1990s that we were trying to keep from the hands of Saddam Hussein. And now we've all got, you know, gigabyte and terabyte uh, processing power in our cell phones, right? So, and, and furthermore, the, the blurring of the lines of these various delivery systems. Like, what does what does the word missile even mean anymore? You know, literally speaking, the etymology just means that which is sent. Uh, but you're seeing a blurring not merely between the ballistic and the quasi-ballistic and maneuvering things, or many of which are go to the rubric of hypersonic missiles, but also between the cruise missiles and the UAVs, but also between those and and aircraft, which, as Kolya noted, were originally uh, excluded from all this. And so it, it, it becomes much more of a spectrum. a a fairly uninterrupted spectrum in terms of these delivery systems, which then raises the question, well, what makes some of these missiles special? What makes them good versus not good? Is this kind of a fool's errand? And furthermore, what is the geopolitical good uh, that, let's just say, like-minded states, which may not include Russia, for instance, what are the geopolitical goods that we uh, ought to be pursuing in our various arms control mechanisms? And here's where I would uh, raise the the question, the the theme that kind of a Marie Kondo moment for arms control. Marie Kondo, the the Japanese philosopher of tidying up, you know, says to look around your your household and uh, find anything that no longer brings you joy. Thank it for its service and send it on its way. And so I would ask not just about this, but as we did about the INF Treaty and about any number of old things from the, the Cold War period, from decades past does it still bring us joy a more or even a sharper question how does it contribute to what and I'm, this is an Amer- admittedly a very us perspective how does it contribute to what the 2018 national defense strategy called the central challenge of our time which is renewed strategic competition with russia and china and i'll be continue to be provocative here and say that i think that what might be most needful in our current situation is the active proliferation of missile technology to a handful of other countries. I'm thinking about Australia, uh, Japan, the like. These are gonna be big shifts. Australia has expressed its desire to acquire Tomahawks and SM6s as well as JASMs. Japan has been moving towards kind of updating its defense security guidelines and how it thinks about its constitutional restrictions. My contention is, you know, what was once uh, special, what well, back in the, the Ford administration the Carter administration were weapons of ill repute, now are just central to uh, defense uh, enterprises and, and, and the defense industry more broadly. So what I would say is these are, just, these are not exotic. Uh, they're not just about delivering nuclear weapons. Rather, these are just normal weapons and normal instruments of acquisition. Are these the sort of things where, as in uh, unskirt 1540, as Colia noted, we don't want terrorists to get a hold of? Absolutely. Uh, But I I wonder and I I raise the question about whether the the way we think about MTCR, let's just say the interpretation of it, might not need to be a little bit refreshed in our current geopolitical situation. But I suspect Colia might want to jump in on this uh, again.
0: And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Yes, I'd love to hear your thoughts, Colia. Please jump in.
2: I think uh, I agreed with a lot of the initial points that that Tom raised, um, in, in particularly the the changing nature uh, of of missiles and how we need to think about it the technologies which now have become similar to what we look at um, the other day I w- I was looking at uh, you know orbital cargo retrieval systems for example something which is now a big thing to talk about in the commercial space industry if you know if at one point we get to orbital manufacturing or even space mining uh, the visions the visions are there but basically what you're doing is building an a reentry vehicle that would need to bring a payload of a significant size back to earth in a relatively controlled way so you have a commercial application here that you're looking at which essentially will do the same as an RV that you would use for a nuclear weapon so we are you know we're seeing more and more of these uh where previously we really thought, okay, so that's something which you know we can sort of like separate out because why else would you do this? Very much, these are these are the challenges of the day. What I would kind of hold against your next points a bit is also, okay, export controls are not the same as they were when the MTCR started or when the other multilateral export control regime came about. Uh, today's export controls, I would argue, are really quite different to the idea of traditional export controls of uh, you know just preventing the the sale of of weapons or you know things needed for that to to your enemies because that's that's really what it comes from today's export controls are so focused on technology transfers and particularly anything that falls within that category of intangible technology transfers so whether that means it's transfers uh, that are just of you know knowledge and know how they call it technical assistance, or uh, if we are we're actually talking about transfers of you know of an electronic nature, we've really moved in that direction. Much of the work of export controls is now on that rather than tangible items. So on that, and just because the regimes and that it's not just the MTCR but also the other multilateral export control regimes they play such an central role in developing these types of controls that I think they still have a significant value. And then turning to the geopolitical or strategic aspect here, I very much understand your concerns, Tom, but I think I come to a slightly different conclusion. And my conclusion is rather this just demonstrates that export controls or multilateral export controls are not the tool that you should be trying to use in order to reach the goals there. But that doesn't necessarily take away from the value that export controls can have. And we see this in the European Union right now as well. We, we have our uh, so-called uh, dual-use regulation, which has recently been reformed. And within that process we really kept getting back time and again to the discussions about, okay, so, well, how can we use this in order to address issues we might see with China and exports transfers uh, to China? Now we're talking about Russia. Again, at that point, we're mostly talking about China. How can we adjust export controls? How can we do things outside of the regimes to do that? And that sort of like shows the issue of we're having a you know, an instrument, uh, a policy tool here, which was quite focused on a specific aspect and still has a lot of value there. But the more it gets mixed with the strategic aspects of this, the more difficult it gets to operate it. Because, you know, if you're doing this in a way to say, okay, this is sensitive items, this is where states need to be, you know, better need to bring in more uh control at least more scrutiny they don't even have to like you know block all of these it's just that there needs to be more scrutiny on these exports you know like that that still shows that you you have you have value in that While if you want to use them in a way that is more kind of like sanctions then it just gets very difficult to operate that system particularly as it is built on uh consensus and it becomes less and less attractive for people to actually get together or states to actually get together um, and try to find a consensus on these difficult questions. So my response to to Tom in that sense is I I get that, but I would try to, to do so through other mechanisms and see how we can think about retaining the value of the export control regimes because they still have an essential function that we... I think, want to maintain while seeing how we can use other instruments more in the strategic context. I will say you will probably jump in on now on the MTCR specifically is self-restricting through the category one requirement of presumption of denial that uh, is applied because states uh, that are outside of it do are uh, not bound at all and states within it sort of like struggle with their own role in when they make decisions that that actually contradict uh, the uh, presumption of denial so it's it's a difficult one uh to handle there and that is sort of like linked to the category one category two system that we have but changing that comes with uh, with its own difficulties
1: i think colio you've really put your, your finger on something that while we may disagree tr- uh, on some issues I think we're agreeing for the reasons we just dis, perhaps disagree. And you said it there, I thought very well, that when you try to incorporate the strategic element here, then you, it becomes very uh, almost untenable in terms of getting consensus, so especially when you have 35 uh, very different actors involved here, to which I would say, bingo, right? And that's where I raise the question, well, then what are we doing here? Uh, does this continue to bring us joy? is this still useful? How is this useful? You've, you've highlighted the export control utility of it. I'm not going to dispute that. But I'm going. what I'm trying to say is, if the strategic considerations, from my perspective, are as uh, important as uh, some folks seem to think that they are, then I think everything kind of ought to be judged in light of that. After all, this has been around, it's, it's changed a lot for a very long time. And so I would say anything that slows down by six months or a year even the transfer of, let's just use the example of tomahawks to Australia. If if it, I mean, that's the kind of measure that I bring to bear is, you know, if we're trying to have a conventional deterrent against Chinese aggression, I want to make sure that nothing stands in the way because deterring a conflict with China is kind of higher on the chart of needs here on priorities than maintaining this this thing. I think, You've also kind of pointed to what I what I like to characterize as the the challenge for nonproliferation regimes broadly is over time they tend to sometimes folks call it norm creating, but it kind of begins to to think of itself as a as a categorical imperative. And I think that the, the using the phrase is becoming increasingly difficult to work is, you know, right along those lines. To which I would say it shouldn't be a categorical imperative. It should be in the service of a clarity of purpose for for particular goals as it was back in the, the 1982 timeframe and that kind of thing. So that's what I'm really trying to raise the question of, hey, have it, has have it has it kind of been outpaced by technology? Has it been outpaced by a very different geopolitical situation? Not that there's not utility here, but that these are some tough questions. People, you know, out in the arms control world, everybody's saying we gotta rethink our, well, to really ask the the tough questions here, I think we gotta question the again the interpretation at the very least. And I would say, I would, I would uh, make reference here uh, on the technological side to the Hague Declaration. I don't mean the Hague Code of Conduct from, I think, 2004. I mean the Hague Declaration of 1907, which banned the deployment of explosives from hot air balloons, essentially. It was one of those things that seemed like a good idea at the time. It, uh, it arguably benefited certain countries that were uh, signing on to it. But, you know, it was also quickly outpaced by something called the airplane and so i wonder i wonder if we're not in a similar kind of situation here because of that delivery system spectrum being so rich and so diversified and so different today than it was in in 1982 or 1987 uh, that, that i think there's still some tough questions here to be asked
0: so tom in july 2020 the trump administration released a new policy related to the mtcr What is that policy? What are some of the developments that precipitated it? And how do you view that change normatively?
1: Yeah, no, I I think that 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 change was uh, was an important one. It was probably a necessary one. And I think it's also kind of a reflection of some of the things that that we've been discussing so far in terms of uh, trying to be a bit too categorical in expanding the the purposes and the, uh, the coverage of something like the MTCR. And so what you saw the Trump administration do is to kind of walk back some of the interpretation of the MTCR's applications for the United States as, as relates to UAV, uh, again, that delivery systems or the platforms for, for various, uh, munitions. And they specifically kind of drew a line, uh, in terms of whether or not they were going over 800 kilometers per hour. Right. And so they, they introduced that that speed element as opposed to the uh, or in addition to the older elements of of payload uh, weight uh, and range. And this is a, you know, a pretty practical consideration here. One of the reasons we see Turkish Bay Ractors in Ukraine today, as opposed to MQ-9s, for instance, is that the United States was kind of restricting that. Uh, the sale of those of those things. And look, UAVs are here. They're here to stay. They're not going anywhere. And so I think that was kind of a practical updating and concession uh, that, again, to the advance of technology here. Uh, My only complaint with that is that I would say it it didn't go far enough. And this is really about my my fundamental concern is that I don't want anything standing in the way of making sure that uh, the United States or or, our allies can uh, transfer uh, if need be Category one systems to key allies so that we can deter that war with China, uh, as it were.
0: Kolya, do you think that that policy doesn't go far enough or do you take a different view?
2: I think I would disagree, although I think it raises an important question, and that important question has been on the table for a long time in the MTCR. So we know that within the MTCR, the discussion about the categorization of UAVs has been going on for a long time, and that Russia has uh, persistently opposed reform suggestions by uh, the United States and by the UK in particular, who have really been talking about this for about 15 years. In that context, it is a difficult discussion. In the beginning of that discussion, much of it was linked to the wider issue of how drones were being used by the united states so there was a quite normative debate attached to this as well where many states were saying well we don't want these instruments for extrajudicial killings being proliferated so there was quite a lot of opposition from civil society and from some states there as well i think now particularly as we've seen the use and deployment of, of drones in a whole number of conflicts. Normalization is probably a bad word here, but it is it is a fact of, of warfare today, and we're seeing countries acquiring drones everywhere. So in that sense, it's very understandable that the United States was looking for a solution. However, what I will hold against it is certainly the United States has a very... Special position here as well. It's been the driving force uh, within the MTCR since the beginning. There's other states which are very active as well, but the United States, in a way, have a special role here. And for them to then go about and bring a unilateral change to the interpretation of the guidelines brings some issues as well, particularly as I mentioned before, the MTCR, sure, pertains mostly to the partners who actually members but it's also an instrument that is being used as the the baseline for for export control policies uh, around the world so we're seeing a state then doing exports that uh, in a way contradict the guidelines as uh, the majority interpretation of them is and um, you know then of course the united states is being accused of doing things in a way that if not you know, contradicts the agreement, uh, but at least goes against the spirit of it. The context there makes it very difficult. Ideally, I would like to see a solution that finds changes to the technical parameters that can be accepted and that mean that we're in a situation where there are technical definitions which help us break down further what is actually systems that can be used as uh, WMD delivery systems, because again, as Tom kept repeating, you know, we're looking for like really what's the purpose of this. And that is that is the key function that the MTCR wants to have. We have the Vasna arrangement for exports of you know conventional military systems and that also covers UAVs. So you know that is something which is already there. It's rather because we have the category one two distinction in the MTCR that it's been so what from the US perspective has been then seen as self restricting. So I was not very happy about the change in policy, but that was mostly due to the fact that, you know, it, it means that we're opening the floodgates to some extent, and other states might follow suit, I would rather see a proper solution before that happens through unilateral action by the United States. So again, I don't think we're that far apart, but it's, it's how we get to that aim. So I would have surely uh, hoped that uh, we would work towards a a solution. But the context, obviously, it was difficult and has just gotten so much more difficult uh, now that it's very unlikely that we, we see a change from within the MTCR coming to that now.
0: So you two have different views of the best path forward for the MTCR. Uh, And so uh, I expect different answers to this question. Uh, So we'll start with you, Tom. What signs should listeners be looking for in the near future to evaluate whether MTCR signatories are taking meaningful steps toward effective reform, both as a collective arrangement and individually? Yeah, well, I think Kolya has correctly just flagged there the,
1: the challenges from within uh, he's, I think, once or twice called it a, a bureaucracy, uh, at very least a consensus-based organization. So I, I think we probably share a, a modest expectation for, for those kinds of reforms. Uh, but my metric here is going to be fairly simple and straightforward, uh, which is uh, to the extent that uh, export controls or, or arrangements or norms or anything else uh, gets in the way of our prosecution of the central challenge of our time, uh, which is to help equip our allies. Uh, This is after all an important asset of the United States and so many others is the alliance system in no small part because we want to have a conventional alternative to nuclear proliferation. I mean, I'm not exaggerating here, the utility of conventional missile proliferation and other uh, military equipment may well be something to fend off uh, that which I, I suspect in the arms control world is the, 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 the summum bonum, the highest good, which is uh, restricting nuclear proliferation. Uh, there are certain countries uh, that when they feel that they are uh, no kidding, their existence is at, at stake, uh, that they're going to look again at the uh, nuclear uh, acquisition uh, in fresh eyes. And so if nothing else, I, w- I would invite to, us to think about the trades between whether the utility of, of conventional military proliferation, how we value that relative to that other concern, as well as, of course, to, to deter a conflict. So that, that's my, my simple metric. Whether it, uh, whether it gets in the way uh, of those things, I'm, I'm skeptical that we'll get uh, Russia <laughs> uh, or other folks to uh, agree with that in some formal, admittedly non-treaty, but still
2: relatively
0: formal kind of way. And Kolya, how do you see the benchmarks for the effectiveness of the MTCR?
2: I think we really have to be realistic at this moment in time. So we are looking at very incremental things right now. The next MTCR plenary uh, is in October. Switzerland is set to take over as the next chair of the MTCR. And to be honest, to some extent... You know, this situation has been like an existential question for the MTCR as well. So seeing whether the Swiss chair will be able to pick up and get many of the functions of the MTCR to continue despite the context that we're in is the first thing. I think then the second step will really be, and I think we, we need to look at, it's it's not a short time frame we'll we'll have to think about a couple of years here uh before we might actually see reforms being implemented but it will be very small things that we see that come out in terms of the press releases uh from the MTCR in terms of how they uh, approach their transparency measures if they're actually able to bring out a full outreach program again you know this was very small uh, for some time now because of uh the pandemic uh, and it sort of only just started again. And then it obviously broke down because the chair has the lead. So seeing whether there's at least enough consensus uh, to get the functions of the MTCR rolling again will be the, the first steps. And then seeing whether next to really just keeping up that functioning, whether we have changes to the control list again in the next years, whether we're seeing new topics being put on the agenda and uh, national implementation of guidelines that come out of the MTCR. I think those are really like the functional things where we can see whether we get to a level that puts the MTCR in a position where they can then consider and start moving towards reforms. But I unfortunately think that because of the difficulty of the situation, this is not something which will happen very quickly.
0: Okay, we will leave it there. Tom Carrico, Kolya Brockman, thank you for joining us on the Lawfare Podcast.
2: Thanks. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for having me.
0: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and the Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Pachy-Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.